It's the ERP Confab. I'm David Essex, industry editor at TechTarget's ERP website. Ever since ChatGPT burst onto the scene last November, ERP vendors and customers have scrambled first to understand, then deploy generative AI technology where it can be the most useful and the least harmful. But what are the best ways to use AI in an ERP system? Where do you get the AI apps and tools? And what about other kinds of AI like machine learning? The IT service wings of the big four accounting firms, Deloitte, EY, KPMG, and PwC, are investing big money in providing answers. To learn more, I talked to Matt Hobbs, the Microsoft practice leader at PwC. Matt, we've been following, like a lot of people, we've been following AI and specifically in our world, in my part of TechTarget, we like to look at how it fits into an ERP system, how the ERP vendors are incorporating it, how do ERP users and customers get AI into their ERP system. So I guess to start, I would ask which modules within the typical ERP system or business processes that are typically handled in ERP have proven to have the quickest ROI for applying AI? Yeah, within the walls of an ERP, you typically see it show up within supply chain, within inventory, within predictive maintenance. You're starting to see that in some cases within financial spaces as well. It tends to be with a balance of other AI capabilities coming from the cloud versus just the ERP in isolation, because a lot of that data exists and AI is powered by data exists outside of the walls of an ERP. So where do you think it might be going? You know, there's the picture that you just described now. Do you see that evolving, maybe AI going into other parts of ERP in the next two to five years? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the major advancements that we've all been tracking is uh, the power of having a natural language interface to any amount of data. And whether that data sits within an ERP or it sits within a cloud kind of application platform, uh, the idea that you can have a natural language interface across any module, any ERP, any CRM, any business application, or a lot of the proprietary applications that clients kind of build and host themselves for specific business purposes. You can really think that that can apply anywhere. Most of where it seems to be right now setting up is that for every software application that's produced, there's this concept of a co-pilot. How do I assist in the creation, distribution, or suggestion of next best action within the walls of an ERP. So you can think of a continual boost of improvement in every module that an ERP has, as well as an evolution of the interface, rather than logging into specific screens or specific portions, your ability to transact across multiple different modules and interface in a different way. There's also this concept of an enterprise application of that knowledge base which those are two things that I think operate in parallel that we're watching is this co-pilot solution suite, which is more embedded within ERPs for task completion. And it really changes the experience and interface in the way that you may get engaged with the ERP. But you also have kind of this complement of, can you rethink the entirety of the process using the ERP as kind of the brokering transaction layer, but not necessarily what folks interface with. I think it's balancing out right now, and it's still early days as to which path is going to kind of win out, uh, but you're seeing both of them show up right now. So how do PwC clients get AI into their ERP? What's the mechanism? 
part of it is waiting for the ERP vendor to add, let's say, some AI development tools and maybe some pre-built AI apps. Oracle has been doing it for a long time, and I think SAP has been doing, for example, invoice matching. The end customer or client, do they also really need a big consulting firm like PwC to come in and help them do it? Yeah, there's a few different routes to think about, and it depends on kind of what the end kind of business state objective is, as well as the company's kind of position. So you are going to see natural evolutions of the existing feature sets that companies use that are going to be boosted further by Gen AI or AI capabilities. Some of those end up showing up in kind of complementary modules that may be done with work, whether it's the technology in-house team at a client or whether it's boosted by a consulting firm. We see both. And then from an enterprise application, that's where it tends to be kind of right now heavily led by a mix of consulting as well as the in-state technology partners around helping people stand up a responsible, secure foundation, which is one of the uh, major hot topics right now. There's also a limitation around GPU capacity, which is slowing things down from an adoption perspective. So it tends to be kind of a mix of a consortium between technology providers, consulting providers, and the ERP vendors that kind of bring together the use case. What does the end client or you know, AI customer, how much can they do themselves in the implementation phase? Or what is their role uh, in this whole process that involves these different players? Yeah, I think from an in-client perspective, it'll become easier over time. I think right now it's still, when you think of the application of Gen AI, there's some folks on the early stage curve where they're trying to figure out, hey, is everything that I put in here go back to retrain the model? Is it a public model only? Is there an ability to develop a private instance? How do I index it with the APIs that I have within an ERP or other data sets within my enterprise environment in order to provide more context? In the early days, that is very much kind of the, the lean on the consulting providers and technology companies in order to stand that up. The use case development ends up being kind of in partnership with what is the business functional stakeholder or depending on the scenario that you're coming up with, a complement with that kind of technology factory engine. So right now, most of it is on the, how do we actually stand up the foundation? How do we prove out some of the use cases? How do we do it in a way that we make sure to, to keep, the, keep an eye on responsible AI boundaries, as well as data and security privacy? Generative AI certainly has gotten a lot of attention lately for AI in general, especially since the release of ChatGPT last November. And it's even, you know, it's entered the popular culture, it's on the evening news. Before ChatGPT, I felt like we were hearing mostly about machine learning, and I, I guess machine learning is involved in ChatGPT, but we, we were not hearing about Gen AI so much. How does the machine learning we were hearing about before, and that still is there and playing an important role, how does it fit into an organization's overall AI portfolio now that they're also going to probably have generative AI? I think they're used for specific purposes. So if you think of machine learning, it's really good at kind of predictive analytics. The use cases that I mentioned earlier around predictive maintenance, inventory optimization, that tends to be the right application of something like machine learning. The weakness with something like machine learning and why we didn't see maybe as much wide-scale adoption as we're anticipating with generative AI is that that needed heavy data science capabilities to interact with it. And so you were trapped in a spot where you were focused on developing proprietary models that you then have to maintain and continue to keep a watch on that would consume the limited amount of data scientists that there were in the world 
within a company in order to continue to maintain that type of model. There's certainly still applications. When you look at something like you know, ChatGPT, OpenAI's release of ChatGPT that you mentioned in November, that is a large language model essentially as a platform. So you're now interfacing natural language interface, anyone in the world, the great equalizer can interface with the same amount of knowledge. And that knowledge is accessible through that interface to everyone to the same degree. So the application of that is more widespread. You can also see the imagination of folks are taking off around the possibilities based on what they see through that direct interaction. There's still gonna be instances that we would anticipate that you're gonna have to fine tune or adapt that large language model for specific purposes, but less so than you had in kind of the machine learning type of approach that would consume a, a vast amount of data science capabilities. So among its many roles, uh, PwC is an AI service provider. I think that's actually uh, something you call yourself for, for this, you know, for part of your offerings. So what does it really mean to be an AI service provider? What is PwC's role in AI versus what a client might do on its own or what it might get from another vendor like ERP vendor or a cloud service provider? It's a fast moving space, especially right now. In that fast moving space, you can think of the role that we play as both to advise clients, which is our history and the advisory capability. We also build AI models or solutions, application, application development for clients to meet their specific needs. In some cases, we also go as far as productizing capability sets where we've built a, a very specific model that helps to solve a particular business problem. So in some cases, we're providing the technology as a product. In some cases, we are advising clients or building it for them. And in other cases, we're working closely with the alliance partners in order to deploy their technology to meet a client's outcome. PwC also offers something called the Responsible AI Framework, which I read about online. It's intended to help clients with governance, fairness, transparency, and explainability issues of OpenAI's generative AI as well as confidentiality and security of data issues. What is that framework exactly? Is it, is it like a set of best practices or does it go beyond that? Uh, so it's a set of expectations and best practices. Something we're very proud of is, you know, this was something that we released long before, you know, anything that's been in the current news around AI right now. So going back to 2017, we were deeply involved in kind of what does the responsible AI framework need to look like? That is things like you mentioned around kind of how do you actually build a model that you can make sure that you're preventing or limiting bias in a model? How are you indexing specific types of data? How are you keeping that data private? How are you meeting regulatory expectations? As well as how are you making sure that you do things like keep a human in the loop in those processes and steps? So it's a set of best practices. It's a corresponding framework, as well as kind of it dives into how do you specifically configure AI so that you build that into the fabric of the technology that you're gonna leverage. Companies often try to reassure workers who are worried about losing their jobs to AI that letting the AI handle the more rote or repetitive parts of their job will free them up for more creative evaluating work. And I've heard this a lot of times and I have to say, yeah. I'm always pretty skeptical because it sounds like something that's easy to say now, but would be really hard to pull off when the time comes it seems like it would really require a lot of retraining and upskilling for most employees and maybe some re-engineering of the business for them to do these other kinds of jobs and have the AI handling some of the work that they used to do. What do you think, you know, from the PwC point of view, what does it mean to say 
uh, people might be freed to do more creative work. What would that be, let's say, for an HR manager or a procurement manager or an auditor at PwC? Because I know you're applying a lot of this technology internally. So I think you can look at the application of any technology in history having probably the same concern, which is what does this actually mean for the current work that I'm delivering and where I'm spending the bulk of my time? And if you look at any activity, whether it's a talent manager within HR, the amount of time that's spent doing documentation versus doing the primary role, which is engaging with employees, understanding their career, concerns, objectives, and being a mentor and supporter, they'd probably tell you the vast majority of their time is spent doing documentation, creating onboarding letters, creating offer letters, creating review documentation to help to support something or document something. That's not why someone enters the profession of HR. That's not why someone enters the profession of being a salesperson. You don't want to be a salesperson to do documentation around the meetings that you have. You want to have the meetings. You want to drive energy. So if you think of the primary role of the individual in every type of function, the reason, the purpose why someone picked that profession or drove the career to that profession isn't to do the things that something like Gen AI or AI can replace. Now in mass, you're certainly going to see instances where, especially in the, in the call center and the support center application right now, where a lot of that is based also on customer choice. Do people want to call a call center and have a conversation? or they wanna engage and send a text response and say, this is what I need, and you get more of an immediate response. So that's where you're gonna see more of the kind of job displacement, but it's gonna be a shift. It's gonna be a move, just like it has been with any other technology that's evolved. Do you have any process for helping your clients accomplish that? Do you give them advice on retraining employees and helping them shift to new ways of working? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is something, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's applied through all different technology programs before. We have something internally called MyPlus. MyPlus has been a focus around how do we digitally upskill and train our employees to use low-code services, different application technologies, use the information that's available to them to do their job more effectively. And so as part of that, that's now extended into a MyAI program, which is how do we leverage AI in order to drive a different result in the way that we're engaging and delivering for clients. We provide that service also to clients every day as we think about, you know, what is the business strategy? How has the business changed? What's the application of technology? How do you retrain employees and shift employees towards more meaningful work and drive towards the outcomes where you feel like you show up every day with a more purposeful intent and energy than show up every day and think you got a mound of paperwork and emails that you got to get through that are more around documentation of the activity than performance of the activity. Back in April, PwC put out a press release announcing a $1 billion investment over three years in expanding your AI offerings, helping clients uh, reimagine their businesses. Can you go into more detail? Like, What will you be doing with that $1 billion? Yeah, a lot of that is you think of the entirety of the industries that we serve. We serve everything from financial services and banking through to energy and utilities through to technology companies. And what we initially focused on is we look at the way that we provide services, as well as what our clients expect of us, all of that is going to be retooled with generative AI. And so both the way that we need to deliver more efficiently, the unique IP and knowledge that we have internally, 
around those industries and how those industries could reimagined, as well as what our clients directly expect of us from an experiences on particular use cases. It was an extension of where we've already been spending a good amount of our time on reimagining the future, but with the idea that we're going to stand up an AI factory under our responsible AI parameters, we're going to correlate together the most meaningful use cases. We're going to directly build kind of the examples where we can show the return for our clients as well as for our own internal operations and try and find a way to shift people's focus towards the things that drive energy for them the reason why they're employed here, the reason why they come to PwC to work with, with great clients is to solve problems that are lasting, that deliver sustained outcomes clients are expecting. One thing that jumped out at me in that press release, besides the billion dollars, of course, was a statement that said, PwC has already started implementing capabilities within Azure OpenAI service for clients in various industries, including insurance, aviation, and healthcare, among others. And it said the solutions have successfully enabled clients to save time and costs while helping accelerate revenue. Can you say anything about that? Can you give me a, maybe a general yeah. idea? About that? Yeah, I'll give you a general idea and maybe a couple specific examples. Mm -hmm. So when we stood this up, we, we actually, you know, the announcement came out a number of months after we had started the program. So in January, we started a program. And when we looked across the options available to us, we have a brand of trust and protection as well as kind of the, the consulting advisory work that we deliver for our clients. And so the path that we felt most comfortable with at the time was staying it up within our existing enterprise environment, that the path there around leveraging the Azure OpenAI service meant that we could contain it within the walls of our enterprise environment, meet the, meet the security and data privacy, every other expectation that our clients have of us and then start working against some of the use cases that we could apply. So some of the most immediate applications that we've seen, if you think of the amount of documentation that's processing through insurance, analyzing and understanding, uh, should you reject a claim or accept a claim? Obviously there's a regulatory aspect in there, but there is a assistance to the claims processor around gathering up the information necessary, summarizing it and helping them make a determination. That's a the good amount of activity around aggregating things together in order to make that determination rather than the judgment of the determination, which which is what someone's you know really, really there to do. The application around code and code creation, code review, peer code, you think of someone who's a software developer, they show up and they want to think about how they creatively solve a problem, how they develop application code to do so, not necessarily go through and document every step that they took in, in code documentation. And so those are the types of applications that we're seeing now. There's also additional ones when you think about peer code reviews, code quality, does it meet code standards? Does it meet the expectations within an SDLC process? You think about the idea that you can run an SDLC process significantly boosted by what's available in GPT, where you're going to have hey, here's the, the, the functional specs. Here's the business outcomes. What are the user stories? What are the testing criteria? What's the synthetic data? Based on that synthetic data, what are the testing outcomes that we expect? And then can you publish it into my application development kind of testing criteria? Those are all steps that we're seeing now that you can, you can see the immediate kind of application of getting people out of doing manual activities that are not necessarily what they feel like are the most valuable added aspects and orienting them towards problem solving, value creation, and the creativity that they show up with energy about. PwC's work with Microsoft is a big part of your area of responsibility. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about 
just drill down a little bit more into what it is that Microsoft offers in this field, the Azure OpenAI service. What we're seeing is, you know, and this is across all business application suites, is the adaption and the availability of generative AI is going to be built across every business application, particularly to the question around Microsoft is they have the Azure OpenAI solution set. You're seeing that also evolve with things that they've released recently called the semantic kernel, where you can build your Azure OpenAI proprietary kind of application suite and then publish it to your other applications. The copilot suite is more, I would equate it more to kind of a task-oriented type of view, which is if I'm building a chat bot, how do I build a chat bot that is immediately boosted by GPT? How do I build call center IVR systems that are immediately boosted by GPT? And so this is where you're going to see the application take the embeddings of the OpenAI platform, ChatGPT, et cetera, and make it so that it has the context of the particular task in that application that's going to drive advancements. You're seeing that with M365 Copilot that's in private preview. You've seen that with the Power Application Suite, where OpenAI, Azure OpenAI is different is that's more of a thought around what is the enterprise application of AI? How do I actually build the capabilities that I can solve a particular use case and maybe build the application suite around that? And so there's two different kind of mental models around the way that we think about it. One is the, the application of something like Azure OpenAI is driving towards an enterprise, big thinking, what it, how do I retool the entirety of the process and leverage the capabilities kind of in the raw fabric that is Azure OpenAI. The Copilot solution suite is going to be more the applications that everyone's familiar with using today, an extension or an enhancement where you can leverage the GPT model to help build power apps without necessarily having, you know, the same low code specialist capabilities that someone who does it today does. Does that mean when you say not having the low code capabilities, does that mean you could ask chat GPT or whatever? I forget what it's called in Microsoft. It's not called chat GPT, is it? There's Copilot solution suites. Yeah. yeah. So you think of in every one of those, you can go into a, I'll give you an example of you can go into a Power Automate, which is a kind of automation builder, rather than going into Power Automate and saying, hey, who's my boss? If my boss sends me an email, send me a notification to use a completely simple example, you can go into the natural language interface and say, build me a automation for when my boss sends me an email, sends me a notification and it builds the automation for you in real time. Then you can tweak and adjust that based on what you want it to do. So it gives you a boost. If you, if you think about someone and the application is someone who has no knowledge or experience in building an application, you can jump in there into a natural language interface. You can ask for something, you can get a starting spot. And most, most folks, even if they don't have that experience are good at troubleshooting. So that's why the, the co-pilot term is, is such a good term for it, is it's something that will get you started or something that will help you debug. That's kind of a nice uh, segue into my last question, Matt, because you know I think the way you just described it as getting a boost is, is the way we editors at TechTarget have found it to be so far. We're, we're kind of hoping that's what it'll be. But I think we are struggling, like a lot of companies, with trying to figure out what generative AI will mean but maybe more importantly, what it should mean. So I know it's really early and it's like, you know, having a crystal ball, but do you have a sense yet or an idea about how it might really shake out and where it might land, where it might tend to be applied and be the most useful in a way that's complementary and not threatening 
let's say a year down the road and maybe three or four years down the road. So it's hard to look super far out given how far it's moving or how fast it's moving. Mm -hmm. What I'd point to is you think of everything in your day where you're creating documentation, you're doing something that isn't inspired by your own vision or creativity, but you're the one who understands what you're trying to get done. So whether or not you're using a tool that's going to help you get there, like AI, or whether or not you're doing it kind of the old way and doing it on your own, you're still the owner of kind of that end state product. So the way that you hear Satya talk about it is a draft that is provided to you. The way that I think about it is it's something that kind of boosts every point of interaction and engagement. There is a lot of question out there around, you know, how does it evolve in the future? When you think of the amount of AI generated content that's going to be created, how much of that is kind of raw AI generated content versus content that is kind of validated, refined, approved by humans and human creativity. There's still a lot of question. I think for the early days, it is a boost to take away the less interesting parts of what someone does. Well, Matt, uh, this has been an interesting discussion and I really appreciate your taking the time today. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, David.